Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Cyber is rightly never far from the news. It's a class of business that's only 15 years old, but is already producing annual income in the billions of dollars for many insurers and reinsurers. Today's guest is Paul Bantic, Global Head of Cyber Risks at Beasley. Beasley's gross cyber income was already well over a billion dollars in 2022 and is still growing strongly into this year on the back of seemingly insatiable demand, despite a near trebling of rate over the last three years. And this is demand that is picking up globally, well outside the core market of the US. A lot of the cyber buck therefore stops with Beasley, and so what Paul has got to say is really important for the future direction of the market. And we've got a huge amount to talk about. Cyber's at a crossroads. Rate has come off recently as underwriters have benefited from the pricing reset of 2020 to 2022 and posted some very healthy combined ratios. The question now is whether we're going to descend into a difficult to comprehend downward spiral like has happened in DNO or whether core discipline will hold. At the same time, Beasley and others have pushed to impose much greater clarity around cyber war coverage, something that has sent waves through the market. In the meantime, The work to get reinsurers and capital markets more comfortable with their view of systemic risk and supporting a cyber catastrophe market has continued in earnest, with Beasley sponsoring a cyber cap bond, Kearney, at the beginning of 2020, a cover that it has since topped up twice with subsequent issuances. We'll talk about all this and an awful lot more besides. Happily, Paul is really easy to talk to and easy to follow. So if you want a comprehensive update on the insurance world's most exciting class of business from one of its best-known lead underwriters, listen on. Enjoy the podcast. Paul, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much for having me and lovely to finally meet you in person. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and your career to date? And I suppose, how do you get into cyber? I suppose these days, someone can leave college or leave school and they can apply for a job at a cyber underwriting firm or a cyber broking position somewhere. Back when you started, I suppose that didn't really exist. So introduce yourself and and then how did you get into this cyber world? Yeah, so I'm currently the global head of cyber risk here at Beasley, which is a real privilege. And I really sort of fell into it, much like many people, I think, probably around my age in London in that era. When I was at school, I did some work experience and I I did it in marine adjusting, actually, marine loss adjusting. That's quite complicated stuff. Very complicated. And I did it for two weeks and decided I want to be an underwriter. And <laughs> so I, <laughs> I went home, told my parents, told the school. And I, after my exams, went and got a job for uh, Wellington back then, which is now Catlin after acquisitions and stuff like that. Yeah. So when was that, that? When we talk about that era, what was that era? That was in the mid 90s and effectively was there for a little while, being a bit of a generalist, professional indemnity, DO, financial institutions, architects, lawyers. And then moved on to Willis because I always knew I wanted to get some broken experience. And I always heard that to be a truly a good underwriter, you need to have seen both sides of the fence and done the broking and the underwriting. So I moved on to that, was there for a few years and then joined Beasley in uh, 2005. And back then, cyber didn't exist. I was again doing the PI, the DNO, the ENO. And around 2008, 2009, cyber came along and someone said, who's going to look at this cyber thing that's happening in the US? And the debate at the time was, well, it's either the property team or we do some technology and O in our PI book. So it's it's one of those two. And the property team didn't seem that interested in it at the time. And I said, oh, I'm interested in that. And it grew from there. 
So technology E&O is the way into what we now know as cyber. I'm from that similar era. I remember in the early 90s, it was a computer crime policy gathering dust in the corner of my office, which I thought was really interesting when I went to work in 1992 as a broker. I thought, wow, this is great. And it was sort of, well, no one's ever bought one of these. <laughs> so you can read it if you like, but no one's going to buy it. So we had to wait 20 years for it to suddenly take off. And so you were right at the beginning of that, because I must say, for me as a journalist, cyber suddenly became a line in Beasley's results and Beasley's presentation to investors. That was the first time for me, it switched a light bulb on to say, oh, cyber is something now. It's something that has a line and it has income. It was. And what drove that was the regulation came in fast around having cyber attacks in the US around that time. Breach response. Type. Breach response, data breaches. And I think it was TK Maxx had a big event. You always have one of the first big public claims. And I remember TK Maxx. I suppose it's TJ over there, isn't it? TJ, TK. You just saw this surge of demand, right? Because things became really expensive, really complicated that weren't previously overnight. And that's how the cyber business was born. And at the time, there was three of us doing the technology, you know, which then became cyber as well. And if you look at the cyber industry in insurance broadly today, a lot of the people in my position or leading the cyber businesses around the brokers and the underwriters, we've all came from that technology you know, background. A lot of us were doing that previously. So it's a lot of the same brokers, a lot of the same underwriters. And there was three of us at Beasy then. And then fast forward, you know, we have a division today and we have like, you know, 150 underwriters just doing cyber around the globe. That's amazing. The market has been through a lot, obviously globally, but also cyber has been through its own particular cycle. What's the state of the market today? I mean, obviously we had a rapid hardening following a series of those ransomware losses from, that really sort of kicked in three or four years ago. And we've now had anecdotal softening. Where are you and, and how happy are you with the state of this market? What we always predicted and what we're seeing and what we're learning about the cyber market, and it is a still a new market, you know, in terms of age compared with lots of others, is a lot of people have spent time comparing it to the DNO market or an ENO market. It's not, it's a short tail market. And I think what we're seeing more than ever is it's starting to work and look and feel like a short tail market looks. So what I mean by that is, yes, we saw some rapid hardening. Why? Because we saw a lot of claims and we saw the threat landscape move and ransomware became prolific effectively overnight. And then what happens as an industry, we suffered a lot of losses and we paid a lot of claims, which is absolutely what the product's there to do. Then you see the resilience bar becoming raised to those threats and rates had to go up because we had both an increase in frequency and severity. And so you have to A, look at your controls and your underwriting and B, look at how you're pricing the risk for that exposure that's coming in. And then you saw an aggressive two years. And I think we understand that the price increases were hard for clients and brokers, but if you look at it over a four or five year period, you'll see that cyber is returning what we needed to return now, which is great. And as we've said, potentially frequency and severity has come down a lot, which we were hoping for. And perhaps the rate was slightly over pushed a little bit over a two year period of increases. And so what you're seeing right now, because of the threats and because of what we've seen, is some of that rate being given back to clients, which is always what we said we would do, do the right thing. Now, how do I feel about the market right now? I feel it's at a bit of a reflection point right now and on a bit of a knife edge. On the one hand, we're at the point where frequency and severity has been good for a while. However, what we've heard, we haven't seen it at Beasley so much as we've said publicly, but what we've heard from lots of others, not just in insurance, but just in the wider cyber ecosystem, is that frequency and severity is back, right? And that they're starting to go up again and that ransomware's attacks are back. And many people hypothesized 
that that would happen as the Russia-Ukraine war started to, from a cyber standpoint. Yeah. We always thought that at some point the criminal activity would return. And so you're in a market where you've got frequency and severity potentially coming up. You've got prices coming off. And so I just think we're at a point where we'll see what the next quarter or two brings. And it's going to be quite interesting to watch. It's interesting to compare it to say it's a short tail because you're so responsive. I suppose your peril is changing all the time, isn't it? You know, fire is fire is fire. It's elemental. It goes back to, you know, back to Greek gods and whatever, you know, since before time, fire and wind and water. But you guys, you know, you're dealing with something that you've got a dynamic actor changing all the time, finding new ways of trying to burn your house down. Yeah. And staying on top of the threat landscape is the number one most important and most difficult job that I think my team has, to be very clear about it. Because the earlier you see the threats, the earlier you can help clients mitigate them and be more resilient to them. And so right now, what we're really seeing is the resurgence, if ransomware is coming up in frequency, of an existing threat. And so we know how to help clients with that. We know how to be more resilient to that. The threat changes a bit because ransomware morphed over its life. At first, people would hold you ransom because your systems were locked. Then the ransom moved to, we're going to publish your data if you don't pay the ransom. And now we're seeing a lot of, we're going to disrupt your data if you don't pay the ransom. So even within ransomware, you have nuances that emerge and evolve over time. But what we spend a lot of time doing, and we have something called the BZ Cyber Council, which is probably my coolest meeting every quarter, where we get to meet lots of government officials, government agencies, ex-spies, threat intelligence experts, is trying to figure out what's going on with some of those existing threats and where's that going, but what's coming next? Because the sooner we see it, the sooner for our clients and brokers, we can help them be more resilient. And we will hopefully won't have the extremities that perhaps we saw so much in the last few years. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I'm here to tell you that Aventum Group is a debt-free, owner-managed specialty insurance group headquartered in London. Through our MGA platform Rockstone and broking platform Concilium, the group controls circa $1.5 billion in gross-ridden premiums across 16 global offices. The group is employee-owned, has no private equity backing, and is very much in control of its own destiny. Synergy is Aventum's partnership model, a platform for entrepreneurial brokers and underwriters to become shareholders in their own subsidiary, a platform that liberates trading teams from bureaucracy and admin and allows them to focus on developing and servicing clients. We believe the traditional employee-employer hierarchy is outdated, which is why our Synergy model is built upon trust and partnership and why all our synergy arrangements involve real equity ownership from day one, very different to the management incentive plans or MIPS that are now so common in our market. We are not a corporate organization and instead pride ourselves on the entrepreneurialism of our team and ability to have fun along the way. Our view is if you want to build something to call your own, have the lead on how you do it and create some meaningful value along the way, a Synergy partnership will give you an unrivaled route forward. For more information, please contact us at voi at eventumgroup.com today. Just back on rates, so you're reasonably happy with where you are. And I suppose the natural nature of markets is that they tend to undershoot on the downside and they tend to slightly overshoot on the upside because Maynard Keynes talk about animal spirits, you know, that people get over-optimistic, people get over-pessimistic at the same time. So right now you're talking about an inflection point are you worried that it could go the wrong way, that the very severe competition might come back? I definitely think as, a, as an industry, what we've got to do is not forget the past. And I think sometimes there was a bit more rate 
perhaps because a number of carriers exited the class for several years there or substantially reduced. And the strategy we took was no, these clients need our support. They need this product. We maintained our limits, our product, but we found that the way to underwrite through it, right. And to help yep. clients be more resilient. What we don't want to do is fall into the trap of just as an industry, just repeating the past, as you say, putting rates down too much because things have looked good for the last nine to 10 months. We don't know what the next threat coming is. We know there's one coming back. We've got to be very careful as an industry to make sure that we continue to provide solutions for clients and keep growing. Having all that capacity go away is not going to help us grow the cyber market and meet the, the rising demand of the needs of people. And with that thinning out of the market that happened, you know, where the, perhaps, you know, the kind of fair weather traders, and obviously it had been a fantastic source of growth during a very soft market in every other line pretty much in the world. So a lot of CEOs were looking at that line thinking, well, thank goodness for cyber, at least that's growing. And then suddenly they got hit by the ransomware stuff and they realized that this is not a class you can just dabble in. Certainly out of that, I would say that the ones who stayed, of course, you being one of the main leaders there, really doubled down. And would it be right to say that at that point it was clear that if you want to be in cyber and do it properly on a primary basis, that you really need to have full service. As you're talking about, you have those relationships with government agencies, with, with the kind of the firefighters of this world and the people who are preventing cyber attacks from happening in the first place and monitoring threats all the time, and then being really, really embedded with your customers. Is that the lesson of that soft market that this is the only way of really doing cyber properly with either the full engineering solution? I think it's table stakes to do it properly going forward. And I think it's going to be so critical. And if you look at the major investments we've been making, they probably sit in two buckets. The first is investing in non-US, which we can talk a little bit in a while. But the second, and it's even bigger, is services. So we have our own cyber services team. We're working, as you say, lots of threat intelligence agencies and companies. But we also, you know, we created just before the hard market, we created our own cyber services consulting company called Lodestone which is now based in US, UK, and Europe. And what we're looking to do is bring Lodestone and our cyber services team to the market and to our clients and our brokers to make sure that we can help clients be more resilient. So what does that look like? Because a lot of people think, well, that sounds great. But what does it actually look like in practice? If you get a quote from Beasley and we find potentially some issues with your resilience where you need perhaps some support in fixing certain vulnerabilities or there's things that you're lacking, we will help you address those. And if during the policy period, because the other thing is this stuff can't just happen once a year at renewal when you look at a client and look at the risk. So over the course of the policy life cycle, if we see new threats, if we see vulnerabilities come up, we're constantly now reaching out to clients saying, how can we help you with this? How can we help you with this? Here's how you can fix this vulnerability. If you need to call us, call us. And we've got a team of people that can help you do that. And then what we also found is clients, particularly in the middle market, reach out and say, can we get some help easy? We want to do a vulnerability test. We want to red team ourselves. And so what we're finding is there's just more and more need. And if you take cyber insurance industry and the predictions for growth and put that over there for a second, there's a reason why the cyber security industry is predicted to grow even more than the cyber insurance industry. And that's because the cyber threats are coming. We're becoming more and more digitized. The amount of need and demand for cyber services isn't going to go away. It links to the threats and insurance and services are going to be very intertwined going forward. Sounds interesting because you say you compare that to the old, say, the property models that start, you know, with this kind of factory mutual in the 19th century, where that heavily engineered model is that the engineer comes around, you become sort of part of the club, but then they say, 
right, you have to put sprinklers in that warehouse. And you say, oh, goodness me, that's going to be $50,000. But then you get a discount premium. And obviously, then you hopefully won't have any fires in that warehouse or any meaningful fires in that warehouse. But at least with you, I suppose the offering is that you can say you need to patch this over here, you need to do that. I presume it doesn't entail the same amount of financial investment at all, but because it's all digital, you've got digital sprinklers effectively. So you can fix this quite quickly. Is that right? It's not the same kind of commitment for a client. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't think it makes it cheaper. Um, it, <laughs> it's the time. Is this the time of those engineers to go and find the places and patch things? The investment is having really good people that know this stuff that can help clients because at the end of the day, you want the best people and the best team. Confidence is king and the client needs to feel confident in that they are getting the right expertise and the right people to help them. You can do a lot of it digitally and virtually, and that does help. But in the same way, there's a lot of clients that want to meet the team and want people to be on site and do the perhaps tabletop exercise where they pretend they're actually having a ransomware before they have one on site and have the learning. So it is perhaps easier to take to more clients because you can use portals and platforms and all sorts of things that we've built to do that. But it's the people and the biggest investment we're making here is into people. It's true on the underwriting side and it's true on the service side. Before we move on, Red Team... I'm always on a mission to try and demystify any kind of jargon-like language. So Red Team, is that the sort of thing where you can't try and hack yourself or something? Yeah, it's effectively where one of the consultants comes in and tries to hack an organisation. And Red is bad, is it? Red's not good. So they're not Liverpool fans? They might be. You're talking to a match. <laughs> Obviously, you've got your finger on the pulse of what's going on all the time in this world, particularly with those connections with that cyber council. You're saying at the moment, you know, perhaps in insurance, we're always sort of trying to work out what the next asbestos is. And for most of my career, actually, the next asbestos is actually asbestos. We were saying in with ransomware, the new ransomware is still ransomware. It's just being done a slightly different way. Is that the right way of saying it? Or is there any other new kind of ways of attacking, or I think you call it vectors and things like that, and often in your jargon, don't you talk about threat vectors and, and actors? Any new vectors or new ways of getting into systems that are worrying you, or is it just the same old and that it's just new ways of doing the same old that are always top of the agenda? There's a couple of themes and trends we're looking at. The first is ransomware, as you said, is coming back. That feels like more of a function that it dipped significantly during the certainly the start of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And now some of those criminal gangs are becoming more organized and obviously coming back and it doesn't look the same as it did before. Previously, you had you know, lots of larger, what appeared to be larger criminal gangs, and now they, there seems to be a lot more smaller ones. That is definitely a threat that the clients have faced before that's coming back. We do a lot of thinking around, for example, one thing, there was a, a sort of a cyber army that was formed. It's about 30,000 plus strong, I believe, last time I heard about it. And you know they were formed to a certain extent to help Ukraine and certain other initiatives in the world and protect people from cyber. What's that 30,000 army going to do next? Don't know, but a lot of people do some thinking around that. And there's a lot of activism that's starting to involve cyber. So we do some thinking around that. And then the big one that's taking a lot of time that people think about is AI. And I don't know if you've noticed on LinkedIn, but no one spoke about AI three quarters ago, particularly. Uh, no, so yes, seven things you need to know about AI. Everywhere. We're doing a lot of thinking about AI. We've, we've started as part of our cyber council, a bit of an expert group that's doing some thinking around that, that we hope to be able to help our clients and brokers with. I guess we're thinking about it in two ways. Firstly, what will it do to attritional claims, i.e. individual clients being attacked with say a ransomware or whatever it might be? Does AI make that more likely, less likely? Will it potentially give us more frequency, less frequency? Because AI, as much as it could be a threat, 
can also be an opportunity because it can defend as much as you know it can provide yeah. defense. Obviously, it'd be bad for the hackers because hackers sort of effectively automate some of the things that they're doing and then multiply it so they can become so much more productive. But then you could become more productive on the defense side so you can plug more holes quicker. Exactly. And then the big thing that's always spoken about, I'm sure we'll get to, is systemic cyber events, not the one-off attacks and ransomwares, but does it bring in new scenarios from a systemic cyber event? Or does it make any of the scenarios more achievable, less achievable? How does it? And so there's a lot of thinking. I think it doesn't feel like early days because just the amount of press and things you see on AI at the minute, but I think there's a lot of good thinking, a lot of good work. And that's one of the biggest threats that I'm sure everyone in the industry is looking at. But nothing specific you're seeing, you're definitely seeing coming over the horizon. It's just, it's all part of an evolution of the same thing. And, and, and to be clear, you- AI has been used for a while in cyber attacks. So, you know, when you see phishing campaigns now, they're getting more sophisticated, they're getting more targeted. At least they've run them through the spell checker and the grammar checker these days, which always seems to be a surprise me. Why would you deliberately leave a simple clue that it's clearly a, some sort of scam because, you know, they can't spell? And, 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 and things like that, but also just the way they do it and, and linking people's personal details with things. You can see for quite a while now that AI has been sort of advancing phishing campaigns, if you like. It's quite spooky, but if it sort of knows that you're a member of a golf club and says, oh, yeah, we met down the golf club the other day, and it's like that kind yeah. of thing. Pretend to be a friend. You know, it can help you rather than having to do it, a human have to do it. It can go and look at the bad places on the web, find out things about you and link that with your work profile and, and do stuff with it. But again, this isn't something that's appeared in the last few months. This has been out there for a while. Well, we might as well talk about that market. You know, I suppose the big question in cyber is you've still got that burning fire of demand underneath you all the time that keeps fueling what you're doing, that you've always got growth and the growth doesn't have to come from rate, that your growth is coming from simply an increase in demand that is pretty much inexorable as far as we can see. Maybe four or five years ago, we went to a Munich Re presentation. And if I was at Monte Carlo, Munich Re did another presentation on where cyber is. And it's exactly where they expected it to be. And we probably got there by a slightly different route, but it got there. And the, the projections forward are much more credible now. But I suppose it eventually comes to the point where will we hit some kind of capacity buffer as an insurance industry? And, and there it's all about those reinsurers getting comfortable with that business. Are we getting closer to getting them comfortable? And I suppose we have to start talking about systemic risk. What worries them? What makes them not comfortable? How do we get them comfortable? And is it really about systemic risk? I mean, are we getting better at measuring systemic risk in a way that's really credible for those actors who are going to have to put their capital on the line for the really big one? You raise some really interesting points. And I think this is probably the single biggest issue that I've been spending my personal time thinking about and working on in the last couple of years. The big picture is... The range of where the cyber market's going is closing and everyone's starting to agree that it's going to become a 20 to $30 billion market. Now that's still quite a range, but it's much less than the 20 to 100 billion that was out there previously. So you've got people starting to agree that the cyber market's going to keep growing. And you're right, there's no rates assumed in that. That's all new, new buyers of cyber. Yep. And it probably breaks down in, you know, the SME lower middle market in North America still has a, you know, a long way to go. Europe's really coming online and firing. Asia's firing. LATAM is now starting to move. So all around the world, we're starting to see that the things that have been predicted are starting to happen and things have an impact on that. If we have recessions or mini recessions around the world, do you buy cyber for the first time when your company's having, you know, perhaps one of its tightest financial years? So I think there'll always be other global economic political issues that impact how the demand for cyber is going to come. But it doesn't change where we're heading from an endpoint standpoint. Yeah, I think so. There's going to be all those clients. And so the biggest challenge we need is 
how do we keep providing the coverage, the limits that we do today to all of those emerging clients? And so we looked at this, we did a piece of three, five-year planning, thinking about the cyber business and where the market's going. And we said, well, actually, if you look at the market today, there's lots of quota share reinsurance in the traditional reinsurance market. But what you're seeing actually, and what you're starting to hear about is certainly from a catastrophe standpoint, there is less limit becoming available, or, or certainly the major reinsurers are starting to optimize a little bit their portfolios and starting to get close to some of the risk appetites that they have currently. And that is when you look at property and you look at other lines of business, that's where the alternative capital, the ILS, the bond market really comes to the front. And so I think we are not this year, perhaps not next year, but I think we are reaching that tipping point where the alternative capital and the ILS, the bond market are starting to think, right, this is the moment when we would traditionally enter a market because we're seeing the traditional reinsurers starting to optimize. We're seeing growth. Clients in terms of insurers are going to need more limit and more support to be able to provide these solutions. Like I say, it's less about the quota share market. And obviously you know, you- in property, we've got the catastrophe excessive loss market. And a lot of people say to me, what cyber really needs now is just to develop a good old traditional cat excess market. And whether some of that will obviously the leave the top, top layers to the ILS and that's fine. That's where they'd like to play. They don't really want any kind of frequency. What about that catastrophe excess of loss? And, and can we define an event in such a way that we know where you're kicking in, that someone can be pretty happy that they will definitely kick in? In property, you've got a two-risk warranty, something really simple like that, but that can't work in exactly the same way for cyber. So are we there on the kind of definitions? I think we made a massive step this year on that. So we got the first cap one done. I think that's really important because what we have there now is a bond that's in place. It's a private one right now. And obviously it's got a wording. It's got a wording. The buyer and seller of that were happy to put capital at risk based on that wording. That investors are happy with, happy to put the capital at risk, understand what those exposures are, understand what the magnitude of those scenarios could be, because we've done a lot of work showing them how we do that both ourselves and how third parties view that view of risk. And they're very comfortable. And we have a product that we are comfortable with and confident will give us the protection we need moving forward to be able to grow the business. So that, as much as it was initially 45 million as part of a 100 million layer, now we've added to it over the year and it's continuing to grow. That is a very, very important moment. And we hope that that just doesn't benefit Beezy, but that, that opens up the opportunity for other markets because this is not just about Beezy as a market. We've just got to get more capacity and more capital in so that we can meet these client needs. And I think that's a big moment. So there are wordings and products out there that have set the standard in the way that this can be done and that we can yeah. work together with the investors to achieve this. And also, is the other key, is it important that everyone's happy with the third-party modeling or that those investors are getting much happier with with that third-party modeling, obviously, which is also a nascent industry that obviously has been a huge amount of investment. Is some of that investment starting to pay off now that um, it's paying off in sort of hard science around this? I've just been on the Investor Roadshow, actually. That's quite a timely question. We've been in Zurich, Bermuda, New York, UK. And I think the best way to explain it is what the investor actually said to me. He said, you know, previously we had lots of modeling companies with lots of scenarios with even bigger range of outcomes. And what you've seen happen in the last couple of years is three or four modeling companies really have become more prominent in market share. And they're all got slightly different ways that they're modeling these risks. It's not the same. They've all got different ways of getting there and thought process of getting there. For example, they all have a cloud outage scenario, but they all model that and think about that in different ways, which is great because you've got diversity of thinking. But what we've seen in the last two years 
is the outcomes that they're individually producing are now moving closer and closer together. That gives a lot of comfort. If you think about something three different ways to come up with the same answer, then you know it's almost like proving your theorem, isn't it? Yes. And a lot of confidence can be taken that those scenarios are coming together. And then you overlay that with the scenario work that we do ourselves as an insurer, and I'm sure other insurers do. You then have quite a few different views of risk and ways of thinking about how to get to that view of risk. And that is what will drive confidence. So I think that's why the bond market and the investors are very interested and very receptive. And obviously, it's a completely diversificatory peril for them. It doesn't correlate with anything else, so it should be good. Yes, and what I've also learned is don't underestimate the impact that the wider insurance world will have on it. What will be happening with the property market at the end of the year, going through next year and into 2025, and the bond market will have an impact on what happens to the cyber bond market in terms of how much capacity there is available, what the pricing is doing. These things are very interconnected is one of the things I've experienced. What about actually traditional reinsurers? Of course, you know, we've had a pioneering set of reinsurers who've been happy to support your growth over these years of mostly quota share. But I was down at Monte Carlo and actually part of this sort of reawakening and understanding of cyber is I met a few people who said, yeah, you know what, we've actually we've started doing a bit of cyber reinsurance and that we didn't do before because there's still a huge amount of just traditional capacity to be unlocked. So there were plenty of people saying, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And now they're starting to say they'll look at it. Is that helping to unlock capacity, just traditional capacity, because obviously it's been underutilized? I think yes and no. Certainly my view from a buying insurance at BZ standpoint is there are some key partners that have partnered with us over the years that have been incredibly supportive and incredibly consistent, the same way we have been, and that's enabled us to do that in a direct market. And interestingly, we've been buying, as we've said, less quota share because BZ is growing and we're, yeah. we're more diversified as a company than we've ever been. So we're able to do that, which is fantastic. There are some new markets that want to write some quota share, but what we're balancing with is it's the top of the hard market, as we discussed earlier. So what we want to ensure is that we've got reinsurers that want to do this for the long term, because what we can't have is, again, reinsurers that take an approach to be in now, but perhaps not as the market cycles yeah, in a short Because you're going to be in it forever. You're not nimbly in and out of this class. This is what you do forever. So yeah. you want our reinsurers to be the same. We are very focused on maintaining and making sure that we grow with those big key partners that are supporting us because you've got to look at history and for the last three, four years, Beasley plus our partners have been there right in the business. And that'll be the case the next time we have whatever threat we have to deal with. And so we're very focused on that. But some of those reinsurers, I think when they've also discovered that from there, perhaps they're often in specialty insurance themselves anyway, they realize that unless they're going to do the full service like you, which is very hard to do, seeing as you know, some very core leaders there who've got fantastic service propositions that would be very expensive to compete with, the way of accessing the risk is to then reinsure you. Yeah. And what about that excessive loss? Do you think we'll be getting that more traditional reinsurance excessive loss product out there? I think you'll end up seeing a cyber quota share market the attritional yeah. and a cap market excess or loss. And it will be a mixture of traditional reinsurers, bonds that provide the cap cover. So I think what you'll end up with is your cyber market and your cyber cap market. That's my prediction. That feels like how it's going. And certainly what we've experienced in the last year is there's an abundance of quota share available. And you know when we go to market and when we work with our brokers, we've been very fortunate to have a lot of clients who would like to work with us on the quota share. And we're seeing that the cap market just generally for the industry has become a bit less so, a bit tighter. And that's what's driving us to look at the alternative options. I mean, we sort of don't want to wish for anything bad to happen, but do you think we sort of need a big event to make it clear? 
we'll learn a lot from this event. Obviously, it'd be a huge data point that we haven't had necessarily. Or have we had events that we haven't really known about that have been smaller than, than you'd have expected? There certainly there have been systemic losses out there, haven't there? Certainly, I don't think we need a big event. <laughs> and I'm going to say that, aren't I? But not just because of the impact on insurance, just the impact that some of these big events would have on the world and people and companies. I've seen it here now for, what, 14 years of cyber. When a company has even a single event, when it suddenly translates into the real world, it's your specialist doctor's appointment has been cancelled because their whole system's disappeared. And it takes its toll on people as well. I've seen the companies that have to respond to these things, and I've seen the toll it has on the individuals that have to manage these events. It is probably the most stressful thing you can go through. The impact on civilization, the impact on the economy, but the impact on just everyone involved and people. I've seen it. It's horrendous. That said, there have been events. If you look, we've had lots of smaller systemic events, and... I don't think we need an event because everyone is actually growing in confidence and consensus on these scenarios and the outcomes. And that's driven by what we've learned from these small events. We're learning more and more about what could happen in these events. I'll give you an example. The cloud outage has been the long discussed and agreed as one of the bigger systemic cyber events that could happen. One of the cloud providers is hacked and goes down and yep. not the impact to all of the companies. If you look at that eight, nine years ago, I think maybe 10, when that scenario was first thought about, really insurers were trying to grapple with that and think that through. Fast forward today, there are lots of different organizations in insurance, outside of insurance that are thinking about that. The cloud providers come to meetings and talk to us about that. They engage on the helping us make sure that we understand how these things are set up so that we can correctly model what the likely outage is, what the redundancy is, what the mitigating things that could help in that scenario are. So we're just in a very, very different place and the world has evolved so much and all the thinking around these. I don't think we need one. We have seen smaller ones and we have seen that they traditionally come through supply chain issues or technology supplier issues. And as a market, I think the modeling, the understanding, the collaboration outside of the insurance industry has got us to a much better place of confidence in all these things. See another one of these big systemic events that obviously the insurance industry over its life has identified, of course, is very simply war. This is something that you've all been working on, another big maturity point in the cyber market on excluding war. Has that worked out? And do you think those exclusions are watertight? Because obviously it's quite difficult to work out if you're in a cyber war or not. So just taking a step back, there's a lot of systemic and catastrophic exposure that the cyber market takes on. Yeah. And there are probably only a couple of things that we can't. And the big one is clearly war. And that applies to, if you think about it, every single product in insurance. That rule can apply outside of cyber to many products. The war becomes too big, which is why you see so many war exclusions are standard in the market. And indeed, why certain markets have established defined war markets with war products just to cover war. And what you'll typically find is they're much smaller than that traditional market. Well, they're very, very specific, you know, for specific it, marine journeys, et cetera. And you manage your exposure and you manage your aggregate and your risk appetite is a lot less for war than it is for the traditional marine products. And so we've been through a, a year of updating war exclusions. And why did we do that? Because just to be clear, cyber products always had war exclusion on them. I think they just needed to be brought more into modern times because cyber's evolving, it's new. And obviously it always helps when there's a war. Like the work on the war exclusion started way before the Russia and Ukraine war, but it definitely, I would suspect, focused people's minds a lot more as you would expect it to do. But at the end of the day, we now have war exclusions that have much greater clarity on where cover starts and stops. And I think that's really important. 
I think that's important for several reasons. I think it's important for clients and brokers that we all now understand how the contract's going to perform. And if you look at where the market is and how it's evolved, I think what you're seeing is consensus that everyone's agreeing on the intent and that we cannot cover cyber war. And there's been quite a bit of debate over the right words to get there. But I think right now what you're seeing is a lot more clarity in the words that have been established. I think the clauses that are out there are much clearer, much better. They provide the certainty that insurers need, but they also provide the clarity that insureds need. And I think that's really important. It's always inevitable that these things end up getting tested at some point, and we'll just sort of see how they perform when they are stress tested. And I'm sure the wording and coverage in cyber will continue to evolve. Lawyers are never going to be out of business, just like cyber underwriters are never going to be out of business either. And, you know, we will be talking about another coverage at some point down the line that clients want to add that we need to find a solution for, and things will keep evolving. But I would say as well, there's obviously been a lot of press about the war exclusions, and it's been a very busy year. But actually, when I go and talk to insurers and clients, and I have the conversation that I'm having with you, and I explain what the intent is, and we've been very clear, you know, we've worked very hard to talk to the brokers and the clients around, this is what we're intending to do, this is the change, this is why we're doing it. And when you have that conversation, I would say 99.9 times out of 100, clients are very much, we understand, you can't cover war, we want to work with you on this, we want to partner with you on this. And what about the camp that is to create a war only once you've fully excluded it to then be able to write it back, obviously with very limited appetites in a very different way as a different product. Do you think we'll see a cyber war market developing and would you back it? There's two big things coming out of this in terms of what this clarity does in addition to all the things we've discussed. First, we're working with the Lloyd's Lab and the Innovation Lab on putting together a uh, cyber war dedicated product. Because interestingly, before this conversation, no one actually asked to delete the war exclusion or for affirmative cyber war cover. So what we've learned during this process is, well, if, if clients are interested in war cover, we can go in the lab and we could, like the marine market has, we can establish a product for that. So we've done a lot of work on it. And interestingly, a lot of insurers and brokers reached out to us when this was made public that they'd like to be involved and like to join the lab and come in and, and look at that. So there's a lot of insurers that are interested in doing that. There's a lot of brokers. And I, I think we're very close to the first product being out there. And I think the market will evolve from there. And I think that will be a really good test for what the demand is. And just will that then establish a cyber war market? From the feedback, it seems like that will happen. And then the next question is how much capacity will we be able to get for the war product? And time will tell. And, and you know, there's certainly a lot of insurers that are interested initially, and BZ's been leading all of that work. The second thing that a lot of people ask about is government backstops and all of those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah that's definitely on my list of things I was going to ask you. And I think it's related because. Just to be clear, I think the commercial insurance market, we should not be looking for the government to provide backstops on lots of things. We should be evolving and figuring out how we can provide solutions and take risk on. There are things that are too big like war. And what the war exclusions do is give even greater clarity to governments and states around the world. So ultimately, if you, it's fully excluded, it's on the state anyway, isn't it? There's a very clear line. And then they can individually think about, is that something they want to look at or not? And you've got probably differing views around the world on that. And it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. What about as part of this, as the property market matured and we started to get better at covering catastrophes and the, the property cap market matured, obviously had better modeling, but also you had almost better definitions from, again, third parties with these sort of semi-state bodies, things like the National Hurricane Center would say, you know, start to categorize hurricanes, tropical depression, tropical storm, cat one, cat two, cat three, cat four, cat five. 
Do you think we need something like that in the cyber world? Something that's sort of like the Global Hurricane Center, but the Global Cyber Catastrophe Center or something? Certainly the other actors in the market have been mooting this idea. Is it something you would support or do you think there's a genuine need for? This is something the cyber market's been debating heavily for about 18 months. Do we have third-party intervention in terms of creating, some, as you said, some sort of size or scale-based classification system? How would that look? How would that work? I think there's a couple of interesting things. I think it would depend on how that cap market, outside of war, how do we decide when there's a cyber war or not? Outside of that, it would depend how that cap market continues to develop and the products and the definitions to determine that. It would be definitely something where a government could have a potential role to play. But I think because of the cyber threats, because of just the way the boundaries between attritional and systemic losses they need to have a clear understanding of how that's defined. I think what you'd be looking for is more non-insurance experts to be giving an opinion on that. I'm certainly in the camp of we don't need to create some sort of insurance established backed view to do that. I think there you want to rely, and it comes from my experience probably dealing with some of the threat intelligence and our cyber council, is actually if we're going to do that, and that's something the industry wants, then we need to think about having government experts, agencies and the like helping with that because yeah. a lot of the times you want someone who's going to be able to quickly and reliably identify and classify these risks. And I think they're probably the parties that are the very front foot of doing that. What they're doing is defining an event effectively. Is that what you really want them to do? Defining an event, but also, as you know, there's a lot of bad actors behind these events. So these are not natural catastrophes. They're natural catastrophes. Well, they're man-made. Yeah, absolutely. To me, it feels very different than sort of trying to agree that the strength and the path of hurricanes, right, which is critically important, but it's a natural thing that we can see and there's full disclosure around and you have all the details. I think with cyber events, there's a lot of information there about bad actors that only to begin with, certain people are going to have access to. Just a final thing that right from the beginning, when you said that cyber is a short tail class, and obviously the funny thing is that you came into it through something that was much more long tail, you know, professional indemnity media liability. Again, as cyber has been maturing, you know, four or five years ago, we were always talking about things like property damage caused by cyber. And then property insurers were a little bit thinking, well, we need to exclude this. This needs to be a cyber thing. But then cyber insurers said, well, I'm not really a property underwriter, am I? Have we got back to a place where property underwriters perfectly understand that cyber is a thing in the world, a new peril that could very remotely, I think, cause property damage? And the same back with that liability market, is that liability market understanding that it needs to take on, if you do the professional indemnity for anyone who's involved in technology, which is virtually everybody, that you need to take that liability on as part of that product, because it's just another peril that is now that we've all got used to, and you leave the cyber, the cyber specific part of it. If we managed to sort of properly define classes, because we had a lot of graying four or five years ago, has it sort of matured to the point where we don't have those conversations anymore? I think so. I think there's an understanding across, certainly when you talk about property, I'll come to the technology in a minute, but in terms of technology, you know, but there's an understanding that cyber risk requires dedicated underwriting expertise, not just to underwrite, but the threats change, you know, and you have to move with those threats. So I think it's a unique peril. It's very dynamic and it can change in nature quite quickly. And I think that is always going to lead from what I've seen to a dedicated cyber market and underwriting to take these things on. And probably insurers have shown, right, they're unlikely to take this on. You know, what you're seeing now is consistently cyber being excluded from many other policies, both in the property, marine world and other places. Technology, you know, is a little bit different for the E&O cover because cyber and technology have always 
been very closely linked. So they've yep. been broadened to include that cover because cyber is one of the biggest threats from an ENO standpoint. So it, I think ENO and cyber are a little bit different in terms of the technology world. What I do think is as a cyber market now, we've got to do more to evolve solutions. So we've got to provide physical damage cover for property. We can do it. And I think that took a bit of a back step as we went into the hard market because it naturally would as, as does a lot of things when no matter what hard market you go through. And so I think now what I'm starting to see and hear about certainly from my team and others in the industry is that we're now starting to see that demand and interest start to come back for physical damage coming out of cyber events. So as a cyber market, what we've got to now think through is, and it all relates to capital and all the other questions that we've had, how can we now provide that physical damage cover as demand grows for that? If there's a cyber attack involving physical damage, we have products for that. We have underwriting for that. What we've got to do is get the cyber market to a point where if a client wants that, they're going to want limits not that dissimilar to what they buy on property. And the cyber market couldn't do that right now because of the capacity challenges that we have in front of us. So I think there's, again, that's another reason why we need to grow the capital and the, and the market. I suppose that's a distribution question really ultimately, isn't it? Shouldn't you, perhaps as the cyber team, be supporting your own property team to say, yeah, of course we can do this extension for you, but we'll just do the cyber bit if they want it and we'll do our analysis. We work with our property team a lot. Interestingly, our property team has been in huge growth mode this year, which has been fantastic. And Richard, who leads that, and I talk a lot because it was quite timely that the property market came on the heels of the cyber market. So we've been able to share experiences and talk a lot. It's been really interesting to work together on that. And we have a team that do exactly that. I actually have on my team ex-property underwriters that are now cyber underwriters. And we work closely with the property team to talk to their clients to really talk to them around how can we help you with the cyber exposures you're looking at. Doesn't mean we'll add it to your property policy, but it does mean we'll help you find a solution that works for you. And so we've got our teams working very closely on that. And like I said, took a bit of a back step in the last couple of years. It was emerging as a market, but it, during the hard market, the demand for that seemed to go away as people just focus on- batten down the hatches and go for the yeah, core coverage. Yeah. But it does seem to be back, which is exciting. And we're going to continue to work on that. And more and more, as BZ's been getting bigger and as we've grown, as you've seen, we're finding that clients don't just talk to us about cyber now, which is phenomenal. I mean, I have a lot of clients that I'm spending time talking to about property, and there's a lot of our major cyber clients that are now major property clients as well. So it's been great to go through that transition. And on the liability side, do you think there's no problem there? This is a risk that liability markets happy to take on, obviously understanding that risk pretty well or because they're quite embedded with you. Is that is that right? The liability markets, yes, has definitely come from that place. And so if you look at the liability market, technology companies are typically buying it combined with cyber because it's very hard to buy separate because they're so interlinked. But then you've got no one to subrogate against, though, if you have a loss. Hilton, potentially. Law <laughs> firms are, uh, are buying it separate. You know, So what you've seen is just, and I'm just picking on some examples, architects and engineers buy it separate. So within the liability market, you've just seen different approaches emerge based on the types of company, the industries, and the exposures that are there. Paul, it's been a really good conversation. I've taken up a lot of your time. Unless there's something else you'd like to chat about, I think we've had a really good chat and we've really gone around everything. I wish you all the best with the market and on this bit of a knife edge. I hope it goes the right way for you and it's not painful. And we'll have you back on the show to give us an update at some point in the future. Great to talk to you. Thanks for your time. I really enjoyed it. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here 
and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.